This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. All right, you ready? I'm good to go. All right, guys. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader. And before we get into it with my friend, Mark Peacock, Deer River Craftsman, let's just talk about a little bit of business, shall we? Number one is Axe Wax. All natural, food safe Axe Wax. It's awesome stuff. And I talk about how food safe it is. And I use it for all my culinary knives, for I use it for uh, steak knives, anything to do with eating or cooking or something to do with, you know, that kind of stuff. I like using Axe Wax. But I also. Sometimes I forget to tell you how great it finishes. It's an all-natural food-safe wax, and it finishes beautifully. So when I'm using Axe Wax, I'm using it on wood. It takes the, takes the wood great. I use it on G10. I use it on um, canvas micarta, micarta. It's really great stuff. And if you go to axewax.us and put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you're going to get 10% off all your Axe Wax. And it's popular, man. It's global. If you go to uh, Toby Morell's place, UK Knife Supplies is taking FULLBLAST10, giving you 10% off. They have Axe Wax. The EU, in the EU, um, Keith Colby at knifematerial.at, he's got Axe Wax, and he's taking Full Blast 10. And if you're in Australia, uh, Gamaco, that's Artisan Studio, artisansupply.com.au is going to take Full Blast 10, and nordicedge.com.au is taking Full Blast 10, as is... Oh, one of my future, one of my next reads is going to also have Axe Wax. So go get yourself some Axe Wax. It's a great, bar, it's a great product, and Noah does a great job, and a lot of people are using it and really happy with the results. So, I mean, I, I've been knowing, I've been dealing with Axe Wax for over probably about two years, and not one person who's been using Axe Wax has said it was a mistake. They love it. Uh, people are using it in their hair. People are using it all over the place. So go get yourself some of that Axe Wax, okay? Next is Total Boat. Total Boat makes um, great adhesive paints, primers, polishing compounds. A lot of makers are using uh, Total Boat products, and it started out as a company that made uh, these products for boaters and DIYers. And it's really good stuff. And they, I use their two-part epoxy. Uh, it's very intuitive. Uh, the pump system, it doesn't make you use so much that, you know, all of a sudden you, you do enough for one handle and you, you do two pumps and you got a quart of, you know, two-part epoxy. It's not the case. Uh, they have awesome uh, polishing compounds. I love their uh, UV Cure Clear Resin. Uh, it's, a, it's a dynamite stuff. Uh, you Use it like uh, you would like any kind of crazy glue, and then you hit it with uh, the UV light. The UV light activates it, hardens it up, and it's dynamite stuff. Uh, they have thick set of casting for the thick set casting epoxy is really cool too. If you're doing like I made a, uh, I took one of my bottle opener progressions and I made a, a border around it and I flooded it with the with the thick set and it made this really cool thing. And a lot of people use it for like river tables and stuff like that, but we won't talk about that. Uh, there are guys, woodworkers and makers using Total Boat all the time. Keith Decent, Derek from Alden, Keith Johnson, Keith Mitchell. Uh, Woby Design, he's using it, uh, and Jimmy Duress is using it. So if you go to TotalBoat.com and you put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you're going to get 10% off all your Total Boat stuff. Give it a try. They're really great, and they're working with makers, and they're and they're really uh, they're very involved on social media. You should definitely follow them on social media and pick up something and see what you think. Tell me, tell me what you think, okay? Tell me what you think. Thank you, Total Boat. Trojan Horse Forge. These guys make the best 
knife finishing vise on the market that I have seen. I love this knife finishing vise. And I know what you're saying. Oh, knife finishing vise. I just put a 2 by 4 in my grant. No, 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 no. This is a very, very great and useful knife finishing vise. It fits into your vise and then it spins. So you have like this locking mechanism that allows you to rotate it around all different sides. So if you're working on a handle, you can twist it around, twist it around, hit it with the hit the locking mechanism, and it's very good. And then if you turn it around, they have these plates. It's called the stable rail knife finishing vise. And then these plates bolt on, and then you can hand sand your blade. You can hand sand your blade that is a distal taper. It'll support the distal taper. Uh, if you've got a kukri or if you've got an integral bolster and you're, you don't want to, you want to figure out how to support that bolster. It's very adjustable, and if you go to uh, TrojanHorseForge.com, uh, they have uh, batches that they do, and you can get on the you can get on the plan for when they do batches, uh, and it's worth it. I, I tell you what, I've said this once, and I said it a hundred times. Every one of the knives that comes out of my shop is on this vice twice when I'm hand sanding or when we're hand sanding, or when they and then when the handle's on and I love it and it's great and I need another one because I, I, it's just it's the best. Uh, go get yourself some of that TrojanHorseForge.com. Go get that vice hand knife finishing vice and if you don't believe me, Neil Camamore has just did a video on how he laces up one of them samurai swords and he uses the knife finishing vice in order to get you know turning it around or I don't know what those. That all that ropes call. You bear with me, ladies and gentlemen. I, I'm just I'm just doing what I do. So go get yourself that Trojan Horse Forge, and then know that they also take a payment plan. So if you don't want to lump it all out, they have a they have one of those services that allow you to pay installments. Go get yourself one of the nice finishing vices. You will not regret it. It will be your most you'll be your favorite tool in the shop because it makes life easier. So Trojan Horse Forge. I want to thank my friends over at Maritime Knife Supply. Lawrence is unbelievable. And Lawrence is with me. Knife, uh, Maritime Knife Supply is with the Full Blast Podcast. And they take care of all your knife-making needs. Belts, abrasive steels, kilns, forges, presses, heat-treating ovens, anvils. Whatever you want, they even have axe wax. They have axe wax, and you can get it. And, if, and I'll just let you know my experience. So I just got some stuff from them. And you're, I know what you're saying. You're in New York. And they're in Canada. Well, they send to New York. They sent to, to me, and, and Lawrence had it out fast. Like, I had it fast. So it's not a big deal that you're in the United States and he's in Canada. It's great. And what they'll do is he will make sure you get it on time. He's, he's a very competitive. The prices are very good. And even if you get a 10-pack a, a of abrasive belts, he's going to give you 10% off on the abrasive belts. They also have some of the things that they have. They have he, – he has the TR Maker stuff, the – uh, the bevel jigs. He's got the file guides. He's got all TR Maker stuff. He also has a book that we're going to talk about today. Dr. Laren Thomas's must-have book, Knife Engineering, Steel, Heat Treatment, and Geometry. He got that too. So go over to MaritimeKnifeSupply.ca and go check out what he's got. He's just told me that uh, 3,900 pounds of steel just showed up in the into his into his into his place and more's on the way so he's going to continually build he's sponsoring a lot of podcasts because he's very uh, supportive of the maker community uh, i want to thank lawrence for sticking with me and uh we're gonna sell some stuff so go get yourself some of that maritime knife supply guys and go get you check out what he's got and then blah 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 i'm with you <sighs> my guest today is mark peacock deer river 
Craftsman on Instagram. He was on uh, earlier, what was he, this past year, Mark, or was it last year? I think it was last year, yeah. It was last year. We had a great conversation, and we we talked about all your story and how you got to where you are and your design decisions. And then I was teaching a class with Tomer in Barcelona, Florentine Kitchen Knives, about three, four, about a, little, about a month ago, just about a month ago. And you came down to take the class, and we had such a good time. And I really, really wanted to talk to you about your feelings towards the first knife you ever made, I think. And I want to know what you thought about it, and then the future of Mark, Mark Peacock. Mark, how you doing? I'm good, Jeff. Thank you. And yeah, it was a, it was a fantastic time. Um, it wasn't quite as long a journey for me to get to Barcelona as it was for you. Um, but it was, uh, it was definitely worth the trip. Um, Barcelona was my first trip there. It was a great city, but, um, for me, it just could have been, I suppose it could have been anywhere. Um, cause it was about, it was about the people that were there. Um, although what a fabulous location Thomas got what a great workshop. So, um, I suppose it being in Barcelona was part of that part of the experience for sure. How great was Barcelona? I, it was it was great so i think i think i had a similar sort of itinerary to you i flew in on friday i saw some of the sites friday um i'm not really a big tourist person so the sites to me was some of the art and the and, and the graffiti yeah. uh, in the local area um and i think um it was it was also just great sort of just hanging out at some of the the bars um in in that area that that, that we were in is it Pobolnu, isn't it i think it's pronounced um so that that was great um yeah and saturday and sun sunday with you guys with with a fantastic barbecue on the uh, on the roof terrace at Thomas shop um and then monday i flew home monday and it was just a little bit more sightseeing a little bit of work um just to catch up on a few things but I just I can't highly recommend it enough to people. Whether you're a skilled knife maker or a complete complete novice like me, it was um, it was a fantastic experience, um, both from a learning point of view and just purely from an experience point of view. Classes are tough, and the reason why classes are tough is because it's it's hard because a lot of these you know knife making classes blacksmithing classes knife making classes are relatively new like i know you've taken a class with alex pole we made an axe making class but these are relatively new and a lot of it has to do with the fact that blacksmithing and bladesmithing were not a hobby (laughs) they were not a hobby so this is not like teaching these classes doesn't have centuries and centuries of like teaching like you do a history class or you do a class that people go to where they're taught, there are people who are specially trained to teach this particular thing. And now knife making and these, 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 these weekend project classes, it's relatively new. So there isn't a whole lot of history in the teaching, you know? I think you could be forgiven for thinking there wasn't a long history, if, um, but uh, if anything to go via how you and Toma run it, I thought it was, it was, Ex- excellently well done. Um, I thought the pace of it was great. Um, and when you consider there were professional knife makers and novices on this course, it was a great, it was a great balance um, uh, for you guys to, to go through. I thought the, doing it in pairs worked exceptionally well. Um, I, I had the honour of working with, with Amwar, who's a professional knife maker, yeah. what a great knife maker he was, AT Knife. Um, and it, it, it was... It was great for me being with with Amwar 
because I could, I could at, at times I could watch him um, at the same time, but you could clearly tell that he was getting a hell of a lot out of it, whether it be technique, whether it be just different ideas. Um, and I think the great part about it was we weren't constantly at a grinder. We weren't constantly um, either hand sanding or, or, or doing the handle. We, we, there was time in the entire thing to sit around, hang out, chat, talk design. Um, I had a great chat with Toma about his, um, his, his butter knife with the, the sort of the interlocking handle. And we discussed how he put that together and the engineering with it. So it was, it was just, it was great to do that kind of thing as well. There was plenty of time for that. The hard part was, was I'm glad this was the second round because the first time we did it three years ago, there was only one grinder. So we had to have people come in, and, the, and the, this is totally different from any time. These, this particular class is totally different from other classes. One of the reasons is, is because we had to take a lot of the work out. Because I've always felt that a lot of these classes, it's hard for people to, to go do these classes like for five days. Like A specific person can go take a five-day class. But I mean, giving the opportunity... It was we. I really like the idea of being able to do a one day class or two day classes. The problem is, is because of like the gluing and the heat treating. Normally, it's just it's just it's it's almost impossible. When we came up with this class the first time, it was at his original shop. We only had one grinder, so we had to figure out how you get a class on that grinder, and it's going to take you know half an hour, forty five minutes to an hour per teacher or per student. So we so Tomer says we're just gonna do them in slots. Everyone's gonna get a slot. And then he goes, Oh by the way, Jeff, you're gonna do the grinding with everybody. So the first time I had all right, we had an hour and then the hard part is 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 managing ex- the time because some people have ground the first time we did the class no one ever ground but had ever even touched a grinder before. And we had to figure out ways in which to get people across the finish line because as soon as somebody's on time or late, as soon as like it screws the whole day. I mean, it's. I mean, if you're if you're late on the first guy, everyone's backed up, and then it's a problem. So, we were really fortunate to kind of work out the kinks on that. And you know, the, the first time we did it, I might have had to take the grind steel out of somebody's hands and just be like, let me just let me haul on this. And the one thing that we did this time was he changed the steel, and the steel was so easy to so much easier to to grind and this is something you know we can you can talk about the steel was so much easier to grind, even the, like the knife makers uh the knife makers when we were there were just like, "Wow, this is like the easiest steel I've ever ground in my life so there were a lot of things that we figured out how to do. The other thing is is we had to take out heat treating because the heat treating part would have been there are so many parts about knife making that are that are time consuming that you're not doing anything with, you know, like the heat treating and the tempering is at the minimum, that's six whole hours out the door, you know, at least six hours that you're not really doing anything. And then the glue glue to dry. So it was a class that we were really happy with because we kind of like cut out a lot of stuff that made it a more of a fun experience for his people. And the other thing, Mark, is when we designed this class, I mean, Tomer was thinking he wanted to get his customers in, not necessarily knife makers. And that was something that was like a surprise. It was, I was surprised that knife makers wanted to take the class. I, I, I think there's an element of uh, would knife makers want to take the class. But I think if you, if you think about the people that are on that course, I think at least half of them were experienced knife makers. Um, and that, uh, I think, was is testament to people wanted it to be an experience as well as the learn to new techniques. I also feel like it was you, you had 
um, as you said, the, the steel was so easy to work with. I mean, I, I, I was actually, uh, Toma was egging us all on to do a bunch of hand sanding. And I think, I think we, Anwar and I came off the belt finish with you in the, um, and, and I think you pretty much said, I'm just not allowing you to, to go and hand sand that knife. The belt finish is too good. <laughs> this is, this is part of, this is part of knife making, you know, the, but the belt finish, depending on who you talk to is, one of the it's if you can get it right it's amazing but it's so hard to get it right and if you do a good job why would you screw it up so the the we just the way we we set it up and the, all the 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 scotch bright belts that we were using and the abrasives and the, we were using the the uh, tr maker the bevel jig which was an awesome investment right yeah a shout out to TR Maker. So if you're listening, if you're a knife maker and you're listening to this, TR Maker makes a bevel jig, and he also has a a file guide that bolts into the bevel jig. So your 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 file guide is is connected to the bevel jig. So you already have your plunge line set, and it's it's like a, I mean it really is a really great thing. But the that was the funny thing is is when we're grinding, we're grinding, 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 and you know with me, I, I you see you see, bell finishes are tough because you can see if there's like problems. Like the, when I say a problem, like the the human hands are only as good as they are. I mean, the the grinder is going to go at the speed of the grinder. The belt is going to grind at the speed of the, the abrasives. And the only thing that's going to make a difference is the your, the human pressure. So, like, you have this grinder that's gonna, not going to stop. It's going to keep going at a specific uh, rate. Your, your, your abrasives are going to go at a, a specific uh, cutaway speed. And then it's just you and your dumb thumbs, and then you can get, like, holes or facets or... So if you get the if you get the grind right and the progression of the bits belts right, and then you get to the scotch bright, and the belt finish looks good, yeah. Tomer was just like, I need a couple guys hand sanding, and I looked at your knife, and I and I was just like, you're not hand sanding this knife. I'm not gonna let you hand. You're too good. You did too good of a job. You can't hand sand this knife. Uh, it was it was it was it was really good. And and talking using those jigs, the jigs made a huge difference. Yeah. It, it's a bit like when, when I'm in the workshop. If I'm if I was teaching someone how to sharpen a chisel, I would teach them how to do it by hand. And once I was comfortable with them doing it by hand, I would then give them the jig and say, that's going to be 10 times easier than, than you do it by the hand. I teach you to do it by a hand because sometimes you won't have a jig about. Um, but actually, I think in the interests of making this course and keeping it, keeping the pace up and keeping um, and, and keeping people on point, having that jig made, made a huge difference. But what I also think that was, was really important was you kind of were explaining what, the jig was performing and therefore if he wanted to do it manually which Anwar actually did I think if I remember rightly actually grind his blade manually um, but, but freehand um, so I got to see someone doing it at the same time which was really nice but the, the jig made such a big difference and it's a bit like you're talking about the things that you had to take out I mean the heat treat it's essentially the heat treat is understanding some of the science behind it which you can do your, your own reading on you can watch a whole bunch of videos to work through heat treating but what you can't watch on a video um, and what you can't pick up on a podcast is that is that pressure that you need to put on a uh, on a belt um, uh, uh, when you need to, to to loosen off when the, the angle's completely wrong it was things like you telling me get that in the water that's getting a bit too hot now um it, it, those are the kind of things that if you're not an experienced knife maker and you're not an experienced metal worker 
it shouldn't come a surprise to you that steel gets really hot when you put it up against abrasive, but man, does it get hot? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That the whole, it's the, it, it's interesting because I think, and going back to why some knife makers took the class, Tomer has made such an impact on design. You know, I don't think that there's a knife maker on this planet who doesn't recognize what he's done. Like his design is synonymous with Florentine kitchen knives. Like there's no, like there's no, he's created something iconic. If you were to take right now knife makers and knife making designs, I think if you had to put a hall of fame on most recognizable designs, Florentine kitchen knives top five. I don't think there's anybody else that, that people don't recognize what he's done. And I think that it was re- the the idea of not just taking a knife making class. There, I've been involved with knife making classes where there's a picture on the thing, and then what you end up with is not what the picture on the thing looks like. You know, it's like, yeah. but to be able to make one of Flor- a Florentine kitchen knife style knife at a very high level, I might add, they were every knife looked great. I mean, really great, and it was. I think that's it, a testament to to him and. Um, it was great, really great. I, I think you should give the whole team credit. I mean, as I said, we started out with you in the in the grinding room. The, the pace of it was great. The, the 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 humor was great. I think you took the knife out of my hand once. It was probably the right time time to do it, just to just to put a bit of finesse to it. Um, I, I think that made a huge difference. And then we went in the um, uh, in in into the the room where we were sort of fitting up the handles with right. the with the micarta and the, and the leather pieces. And uh, and that was with I think was 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 with Moshe, uh, member of right. um, Thomas' team, uh, who was great as well. Um, loved his dry sense of humour. Um, that that worked well for me. Um, but what I found, uh, to your point around Thomas' design, what I found one of the biggest takeaways for me was was not necessarily about making the knife. It was that concept of the design. It was that concept of the organisation that that you could create those patterns and you would lay them out in the, in the rows of, of seven. Um, and, and then you would, you, you, you'd have to think about the, the alternating layers and, and that just jibed so well with me in terms of how that could be applied in furniture design, um, uh, and many other areas of, of, of my own business. So I, I found that part really, really interesting. It was, it was that level of organization before you get to the, the practical hands-on element to it was, was, was great. I got to um, tell you that whole, his whole system, he's a goddamn genius because his whole system, like the a most amazing part about his handle system is based on the side, you know, whatever the handle discs are. The colors are the same. The size, the colors are different, but the sizes are the same. So it doesn't, it doesn't. You're not doing anything different except for choosing the colors because the discs are all the same. Yeah, and it's just like it because for me everything is like every handle I make, it's like a production, and it, it's just like for him, he's he has figured it out to such a degree that he's taken the guesswork out of it, and that is is he's he's probably he is a giant inspiration to me in terms of the business end. Without question. I got like three guys I call. Three guys I call when I'm in the weeds. Tomer, Jonathan Porter, and Jared Thatcher. Those are the three guys I call. It's a good group. <laughs> oh my God. They're but they're all they're all smart. They're all like business oriented. They're all they understand the business end of the knife making. They're not concerned as much with the when we talk, they're never talking about the 
you know, artistic end. They're talking about like the nuts and bolts of how you get it across. So, I mean, I think I interrupted you. Did I? No, that was, that was, I think it was perfectly chimed in. It was, I, I, I'd agree. I think that, that whole, that whole process, uh, that whole way of thinking um, is, uh, it, it, it was very inspirational to me even in the furniture making side of things. Um, apart from the fact that I was having fun um, making a knife and hanging out with you guys. But to that point, I, I was, I was doing this course thinking about the benefits to my business, right. which wasn't my intention of going on the course at all. Um, it was supposed to be a bit of a break for me and a bit of something different. Um, but it, I, I ended up, almost thinking going going home uh on the plane on on monday which which by the way i listened to knife talk and those guys completely uh screw with my head talking about planes coming down i think you had the same problem um <laughs> just as i was boarding guys, the, 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 guys don't fly you, yeah. you gotta listen to knife talk if you're listening to this if you listen to knife talk while i was on the plane going home to new york they were recording without me telling me that my plane was going to go down same, you know, or yeah, something like yeah. that some bullshit yeah. Yeah, it, was, it was weird to hear you <laughs> listening to a podcast while you're on a plane and then your friends are telling you, I hope the plane doesn't go down. That was weird. Exactly. Yeah, yeah it was weird. I, so it was, I was thinking about the business elements as well as the design elements of, of what I took out of the trip. Um, and I was expecting to be flying home thinking, I've got a cool knife sitting in, 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 in the hold and I'm looking forward to getting home and cooking with it and, um, uh, and having a really proper sort of sharp knife in the, in the kitchen um, for a change. Um, but I wasn't. I was sitting there thinking about how can I organise the shop better to, for, for the processes that I saw um, in Toma's shop. I was sitting there thinking about the design concepts of how I could use essentially laminated um, layers. I was thinking about um, even the sort of the, uh, the, the the end product of delivery because the the last conversation I had with, with Tom was about how beautiful the boxes that he put our knives in were. Uh, so that got me thinking about the, the sort of the packaging side of things of of delivering of delivering furniture. So there were so many elements that that I probably weren't yours and Toma's intention, but because they're part of the day-to-day business and you get to see behind the curtain, you get to take away that stuff as well. Exactly. I mean, that's, that, tr- that's truly what inspiration should be. Yeah. Where you, you like when I, back in the day, we used to go to the museum and I wasn't like, I'm inspired to make this person's thing. I'm inspired to work. And his shop is so great because he it's it's there's, there's no there's no stuff that's not supposed to be there. Everything is very specific. There's no you know snow blowers in there. Not that there would be in Barcelona, but you know what I'm saying. There's no lawnmowers. There's no junk places. Everything is very organized to that shop. And his he has figured out ways in which to make every process a no brainer. You know exactly what you're going to do, and it it really kind of streamlines his whole production to the point where it is very inspiring so you you're coming home what did you what did you what did you think you were going to change what do you think you were going to get out of this well the first thing i did when i got back on the shop in tuesday was was completely clean it from top to bottom and 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 change every blade um because i felt like i must have been slacking there um so that was great but the first thing i wanted to do was was pull out a whole bunch of scrap pieces of wood because i had a I had a design idea in my head immediately after um, be, being around um, 
uh, being around you guys and, and, and particularly being around the knives, the stacked handles that we made. Right. And I had this, I had this design in my head of, of, of a drawer face and a table leg that involved these sort of stack layers. So I pulled out a, three pieces of wood that I thought would be complementary in terms of the uh, contrasts of colour, which I got took from you because we were talking about some of the colourway stuff at the, the barbecue in the evening. And I was thinking about this might be a really, really cool piece of furniture where I, I, I sort of isolate this stacked laminated piece of timber inside something else that's really clean um and uh, and 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 sort of mono in its own in its itself so this idea of a table where everything is the table is oak apart from the drawer front and that is the the, the stacked sort of laminated different colors of of the timber and that again if you think about the knife the knife itself is a is a mono color although it's got the, the brass in terms of the the, the pommel um and, and the bolster but it, it it was the same concept. It was that put something really interesting um, next to each other. I saw that on your Instagram, the Florentine table, and and yeah. it, I love the fact that you really kind of thought that through. That whole the idea of the contrast between the handle and the it really. Now that I think about it, now that you say that, it really speaks that volumes to you know the idea of your design delivery and and it's, it's how you're figuring these things out. I'm really you know. I think that's amazing. I think it's amazing to, to, that you thought about the, the contrast between the steel and the wood, and then that's part of the thought process behind the table. Yeah. Um, but already, I've, uh, in terms of the organization side of things, not just the design element, it's, it, it, it's, I've, I've started to organize certain, certain tools into certain places in, in, in the shop. Now, I was reasonably well organized, to get me wrong. It, you, you can't run a business without having some level of organization, but it 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 was like getting all of my um all of my chisels absolutely in one place um so they're right near the sharpening station um as opposed to having some one side of the shop and the others on the other side of the shop it it was it was the element of when i was cutting um those pieces it was about making sure they were they were numbered correctly and i had a system for them to come off of the table saw um and, and it it was elements of the stuff like that that I'm I'm used to marking out, but usually I'm used to marking out from a point of view of joinery where it's it, it, you're numbering something to go to something else that could become quite obvious. But with something this intricate and this detailed with so many different pieces, it was really important to to have those numbered in the right order, ready to go, and then and then taking time to to to, to place them. And actually, that meant having a completely clean work table with not loads of crap on the sides. And that was another thing that I took from the shop. There were so many surfaces, but they weren't piled up with crap, which typically my workshop, when I'm halfway through a project, let alone when you've got eight students halfway through projects, you you could expect to see a whole load of crap sort of piled up in places. So I've, I've worked on, um, um, four client pieces since I got back from Barcelona plus the, the Florentine table. Um, I've got two more um, that I'm working on at the moment. I have made a commitment to myself that I am not going to let the workshop get out of sync and out of order um, and have loads of stuff really, really messy across the ta- tables um, because I'll, I'll be able to think clearer and I'll actually have better efficiency and I'll get to the, to the finish line quicker. And I've kept to that 
over the last sort of three to four weeks since since the trip. Um, and I can't remember the last time I managed to get six pieces of furniture, including a concept design, out in four weeks. Um, so huh. there's definitely something there, right? And in terms of running a business, A, being on time for your client, and I had a pretty tight deadline for three pieces. Um, two, um, sort of not coming back to the shop after a project and thinking, oh, Christ, I've got to now clean it from top to bottom. I got back from a delivery where I, uh, I did the cannonball run in a day, five hours down, did the delivery five hours back. Oof. And for once, I sort of walked into the shop to, to, to put a couple of the tools back in place like, I don't have to clean the workshop because I cleaned as I went as I was doing these projects. And that made a huge difference. So it's, I, I go back and forth on a clean shop. <laughs> part of the reason why is because I, I've been in two really great metal shops. One of them was pristine all the time. You could eat off the floor. And one was a dump. The one that was pristine, no work was going through it. Or not uh, enough right. work was going yeah, through yeah. it. And then the one that was a dump, it was so high high production. You'd have a, as soon as the deadline was up and the next one was on and it was like, you know, craziness. And part of me was just like, you know, my shop gets that way. Recently, I've actually, uh, the, the, the guy who's been working here, David has been great and he's been helping me clean the, we've been trying to organize the shop more and stuff like that. But I kind of go back and forth on the whole thing. Part of me is just like, you know what, I'm, the place is a dump, not because I'm a slob. The place is a dump because we got a haul ass. So yeah. I do. I'm. Ne- however, we did clean the shop one day, and I was just like, you know what? I got to do this more often. So I'm <laughs> yeah. on the fence. You know, part of me thinks that like sometimes I think that when people are too busy cleaning their shop up, they're just like they don't have enough work to do. But that might be my own anxiety. I don't know. I, I, I think it's there are definitely times where you are up against a deadline and the last thing you want to be doing is cleaning a shop or, or doing any kind of maintenance, right? You'll, you'll eke out that, that, those laugh, those laugh teeth on, on a blade because you're up against a a, a deadline. So I I think it's sometimes we're a false economy. Um, sometimes they're not, um, I I think you've just got to go with what feels right to, to, to to you at the time. So, uh, but something I will say is, and it's not even, it's not about the shop being pristine. There is always sawdust on my floor. There is always a tool out of it, the place that it's supposed to be at. But it it was not letting every one of the tools that I use stay on the surface. Right. It was it wasn't it was it wasn't sweeping maniacally like every couple of hours to your point you're not getting work done if you're constantly keeping it clean. But it was making sure that I got to the end of the day and we were good to go the next morning. I think that was the. That That's was the point. good for the. That is definitely good for the mind. Yeah. Question for you. Yeah. Back to the class. You're a skilled carpenter, a skilled woodworker, craftsman. Not a lot of experience. I'm, I'm assuming not a lot of experience with metal. How do you feel your experience as not a knife maker yet? How do you think it translated into the knife making? Was it comp- everything completely foreign to you, or do you feel like there were things that were very crossoverable? No, I think there were there were definitely things that that, that crossed over. Um, I think the, the the key element about thinking through what you were about to do um, uh, and being clear on what you were about to do absolutely was a crossover um whether that be from a 
um, technique point of view, but also from a safety point of view. It, it was that element of we're about to go and use machines that if we're not paying attention are going to take parts of our body off in the wrong direction. So there was definitely that part of the crossover. I I wasn't sure how many of the people on the course weren't um, experienced uh, makers and whether you guys had to do a kind of different safety briefing for them, but you kind of knew that Anwar and I were were both used to being around spinning blades and spinning machines. So there was, guys, you know what you're doing, but... (laughs) <laughs> this we, is a grinder. It's going to hurt. This is well, a, we, this we is a big rotating disc. Yeah. <laughs> we did have a diplomat, a, a, a diplomat who had never done it before, used any machinery before at all. And there was another young woman who was fantastic who had never used a grinder before. So it was like there was a little bit. There were moments of me just making sure I keep my eye on everybody. And but I would I would think except when I was watching you grind, I felt like I was because I watch your videos too. Your your videos are great. I saw this level of concentration that I recognized from your videos, like yeah. running something through a table saw, running something through a planer or something like that. I almost felt like you were able to kind of like pivot into drawing something through past a grinder, which almost was, it wasn't foreign to you. You had the same, like at a, it was a very, you know, deep level. I felt like there was a, a comfortability with the procedure that you were doing. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that element of paying attention to what you're doing um, is was really key. And I think that was the interesting part of learning with the metal how quickly it heats up, um, and actually how quickly. And I, I know the steel you were saying was was really useful or really easy to work with, and and, and certainly went 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 like butter. And I, I'm, I'm I've probably got spoiled now, and I'm expecting every piece of steel I work with to to, to to grind that quickly. But it was the what did surprise me is the speed um, that it happened at, and and I think the really interesting parts was you have to have the same attention to detail. You have to have the same um, attention to to technique. And they weren't techniques that were, um, that were completely alien to me. I'm, I'm used to being a sander. Um, I'm I'm used to having a a sander. That's not an orbital palm sander where I'm, I'm pushing something into it. Um, Dowel rod, for example, anytime I'm doing draw bore, um, joinery i'm having to chamfer the end of a um of, of a dowel making sure that the the the, the, the sand is not going to take it out of my hand and spin it across stuff right. the room but yeah i i think that that understanding of of pay attention to the workpiece um both from a technique and a safety point of view um and keep checking yourself and keep and keep thinking through but the total learn for me was how quickly the steel was heating up and how um and and also having a real focus on uh, keeping the pressure even um as as we were drawing the jig um across the belt um and i think i was i was found, finding that i was putting too much pressure um towards the sort of um towards the the tang and where the where the file guy was and i wasn't getting enough pressure towards the end and i and i, and I couldn't quite um sort of work out i felt like i was putting the, the, the same pressure on but for whatever reason i was removing fastly more at the, at, 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 or more at the middle because i think right i think you were saying 
close towards the fire, you're not leaving it there long enough, you're starting it there, and you're moving immediately, and, and you're staying a lot more in the centre, and then you're not doing enough on the end. And it did take a while to get that nice sort of firm ease and pressure and get that nice, smooth sort of transition the, the whole way along the blade. Whereas I'm kind of used to the, the sanding not needing to be that intricate, and I can move to one part of the wood, then another part of the wood, and, and even though I've got a technique for sanding, it's it, it, it broadly you can move it back around. Whereas the absolute key I found with 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 grinding the knife was that smooth, even pressure and keeping the pressure that consistent the whole way through. So I, I think uh, that it, once again, it's interesting because knife making as a hobby. Has, has become you know explosive because there are now companies making products that you can have in your home, and you know the fact that you can have a heat treating oven is I mean we're, we're I mean some people are saying well there were heat treat ovens in the eighties and the seventies I know but eighties and the seventies like when you're talking about something that's not as common for you know people had woodworking tools like table saws back in the day and people didn't have heat treating kilns and grinders for knife making at home and this is a relatively new thing. The 2x72 grinder, which I love, and I have a few of them here, might not necessarily be in the future the number one grinding platform for knife making. Because every knife's different. Like if you're making like a small paring knife versus like an 8-inch chef knife, that's the problem. It's the pressure that you're putting against that 2 inches of belt. Like sure. At some point, someone's going to say, hey, look, I'm going to make a belt that's eight inches long. I'm going to make a grinder that's got eight inch balls, uh, wheels, and you're going to have, you're going to have, we're going to, I'm going to work out a deal with a belt company. And we're going to make, you know, you know, seven, two, eight by 72 belts. And then you're going to be able to push against the belt once you can have even pressure on the whole belt. And then, then you're going to, there could be something like that down the line. I know that they make belts that size, um, but it's it's hard to understand exactly what's happening. Usually what happens is if you're pushing the, the knife evenly on the belt, sometimes your hand, I mean, this is the part of it being by hand, you're still by hand, you'll you'll kind of push the knife a little bit towards a uh, one of the edges of the belt, and you'll put a gouge in your blade. And, and yeah. you have to, all of a sudden, you, anytime you got it that, you got to pull it all out, and it's it can be hard. It can be hard to, to, to put together. But, I yeah. mean... We, as long as you, it takes experience to kind of know that. It takes like a lot of, you know, being able to look down the barrel and trying to figure out what our end up goal is. And the other thing is, is part of, you know, the, the class was if your blade isn't even, like the edge isn't even, then when they do the sharpening, it's not going to be even. Because if it's thicker in the front and, and tighter in the, in, uh, and, and thinner at the heel, when they put it on the Tormek, you you're you're at the mercy of whatever you've done so like it's going to get a wire edge on the thinner part versus the thicker part and it's just one of those things that it takes a while to kind of figure out yeah absolutely and that was i think um, on i was i was really happy that um i think it was one of the few knives that, that moshe when we got to the start sharp and the tormac said yeah we need to go back to the grinder and just make sure those um th- those edges are uh, are a bit more um uh, are a bit more consistent before we stick on the tormac and start sharpening well that's um, the hardest part that's the hardest yeah. part of being able to have machinery that takes the work out of it but you have the human element that is there to kind of like get you through to where you're supposed to be yeah, absolutely. But it was again. That was another. It, it was almost completely different 
skill, but it was the same. It was the same theory using the tall map to sharpen that that idea of keep keep the angle consistent. Even though you're using your jig, you've got to keep the angle consistent. You've got to keep a nice even pressure. You've got to you've not got to let the blade sharpen more in 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 one place. There really was a technique that it, it took quite a while uh, for, for me to get the hang of it um I, I think i did one pass where moshe was actually fight, fighting with it um and in the end of course so we got we got to uh, the real finished product he, he he sort of finished it off and made sure it was perfect for us um which was very thankful for but what i really liked about everybody that was teaching was everyone gave you the opportunity to not necessarily make mistakes, but give you the opportunity to make sure it was your knife, that it was you that was doing the majority of the work. Right. But it was, let me just put the last finishing touch on, on this to make it absolute quality. So you know that you're taking absolute quality home with you because particularly for me, that was the first knife I have ever made. So I can't expect it to be, uh, to, to, to be great. Um, I can't even expect it to be good and it was fantastic. Um, so massive thanks to you guys for, uh, for knowing when to teach, um, and when to take over. <laughs> so, so knowing that you submitted some questions to knife talk, yeah. I'm under the impression that you're, you're on your voyage. You're on the voyage. You've got the bug. Yeah. You've spent some time, you spent some money and you're going to start making knives. Is that right? It is. Um, I started forging a knife today, in fact. Um, so Sunday's usually my, my day to, to experiment in the workshop. Um, uh, so um, it, it's the day I give myself to, 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 to really sort of um, try different techniques or, or try different ways of, of, of working. But today, this morning in particular, um, I wanted it to be about um, getting in, uh, getting the forge fired up, and really, really spending a number of hours at the forge rather than just spending ten minutes at it, uh, doing doing something that I I'd done over the last couple of months. So, yeah, I've I've I think I had three hours st- straight up um, with the forge lit. Um, I made myself a sort of a a quick sort of um uh, part of a like a. a, a sort of a tray i wanted to make a sort of a holder um um for for a tray um so i was just upsetting the ends and getting a bit of a um getting a bit of a, a curve on something and really that was just to get get used to being at the anvil get used to um how uh, getting the steel hot um and being around around the forge um i was happy with that um and then i cut off a piece of um of bar stock um, I got from Alex um, when I picked up picked up the forge and the grinder, um, and I, I thought I'm just look, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for it I'm gonna I'm see if, at the very least if I can get to the point where I've sort of forged out the tang um, ready for ready for grinding later the, uh, this week and then but before I even do the, the the sort of the profile shape of the actual knife it would have been a big learning uh, curve and I had a great time um, doing it today um, it was. I put it on my stories on Instagram earlier. I think the key thing I learned today was, again, this goes back to what we've been talking about, being being prepared to know what you're going to do next as you pull the steel out of the forge. Getting getting your work area set up was more important to having using as much time of the heat as I could do than actually how hard I hit the steel. That That was more important. Um, than, than anything else so I think I spent 
the time today, not necessarily getting the hammering technique, but getting the technique down for how do I take the steel out of the forge in an efficient way to get it to the anvil as quickly as possible? Where's my hammer being placed so I can pick it up and start work straight away? What angle um, should I hold the tongs at to mean that, that when I put the steel onto the anvil, I'm doing it in a way that it's solid because uh, for the first 10 minutes, I think I spent most of the time watching, watching the piece of steel bounce up off of the anvil because I didn't have a decent grip of the, of the work piece with the tongs because I'm used to working with wood where I can put as much pressure and hold that piece of timber as much as I want to because I'm not in fear of it burning my hands. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the, that's the, the whole different part of it is it with, with working with, with steel or metal. It's that, that being conscious of the piece that you're working on is potentially the most dangerous thing in your work area, whereas I'm used to the piece that I'm working on being the most delicate thing in my work area. So um, that, it's a different mindset. Um, but it, it was really today was getting down that technique of, of, of wanting to, to, to understand how to set the work up, not even the hammering technique. So. I watched your stories this morning and I thought that you had more, I thought you had more, what should I, wisdom than most people. And I felt like, I think that the most important thing that, I mean, I, what I got out of what watching you was like, he's right. He's, 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 he's you, there's underlying stuff about forging that people just don't really, they don't think about. And, it, and one of them is just being comfortable in what you're doing and not struggling. You know, being, being comfortable at the anvil, figuring out the best way to get to just exactly what you said. What you said was perfect. And the point where I thought, at one point I thought, I think it also comes with age. Like, I think that, yeah. I think that not being impatient and, you know, welding in and of itself is an impatient game. Like, I used to make jokes back in the days. I like welding because you don't wait for glue to dry. Like, it's instantaneous. Yeah. Everything's instantaneous. And with metalworking, there can be this degree of instantaneousness, too. But there's also a lot of impatience. And I think that you're you kind of having this, like, more of a deeper understanding of, okay, I got to have the, I got to feel right. I got to think about what I'm doing. I can't just, just start hitting. Like, a lot of people just start hitting. And they, you know, even use expressions like, or just hit the steel. Just hit it. We just do a lot of hit, and there's more thoughtfulness than I think people allow themselves to give. But a lot of it has to do with the fact that people are impatient to be better at things that they're new at. You know, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And and I am one of those people that's impatient to be able to, to be better at doing these things. And and, and yeah, there is a wisdom of of, of age and of essentially making stuff for well over twenty years now. Um, but I've. I've had some good teachers, not just you guys, but as you said, I've been on a couple of courses with Alex's crew and work with Steve House and Joe Garner and, and, and Alex down there. And, and, and those guys teach you in such a way as to set you up right to, to remind you that you're not supposed to be perfect at this at the beginning and you're supposed to make mistakes. Um, and, and so it's, it, but it, it, it felt, it felt good today though, in terms of, it's been a long time coming for me wanting to get to the point where I can feel like I can start this journey um, and and have the right things in place. So, for example, what are the, and I know some of the, the questions I have asked you guys is, right, I've got a forge and I've got a grinder and I've got a hammer and an anvil. Actually, what are some of the other tools that I might <laughs> that I might actually need to, to set myself up to, to do this stuff right? The, the things that, that 
we're not necessarily talking about, but some of the little things that you guys have already got around your shop because of the experience of doing it for a number of years. You've got, uh, 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 whether it be a, a, a file over there or a, a jig set up over here or the state stable round knife um, uh, uh, um, that you were talking about at the, at the beginning. Oh, the stable so, uh, real knife vice. Exactly, yeah, right. vice. That's the word I was looking for. So it, it's, it's those kind of things. I'm not expecting to buy these things straight away. No. But to your point, right, there are ways that you can do this without going out and buying them straight away. But guess what? When you get to the point where you can afford one of those, it will be so much easier for you. But that's when you're making a lot of knives, not when you're doing it as a hobby. Um, and... And that, for me, is what I, I, I see happening here. I, I, I am such a person that I, there is not a day that goes by where I don't want to try and make something. And because my last hobby, um, many, many years ago now, it felt like a hobby, but I turned my last hobby into a business. Um, it, it's been a business such a long time that I forget that it was a hobby once upon a time. Um, that it's nice to have something else that, will become a hobby and I can do these things for, for me and be very, very creative and it be, be something where I can go, I don't have the, um, the, the stress and the worry of thinking, will the client like this? Because in most of the time, any of the knives I'm going to make, they're going to be for me or at the very most, they're going to be for, for friends and family where I'm very unlikely to be charging them anything. Um, it's, it's, it, I'm looking forward to having something like that again. Um, but I also know that I will not want to um, uh, let up on the quality side of things. And I will take pride in making sure I get the technique right. Um, so I think that's a key important part of it as well. And I understand from years of doing not necessarily knife making or even metal working, those techniques take time. They really do. I think that there are a couple things it's going to be really exciting to watch you do stuff. I think that it's going to affect the way you you do your woodworking. Like, I think that you're going to start to see things differently. I think you're going to maybe see things in a different manner. I think you're going to... Uh, incorporating metal into your work is going to be great, making hand yeah. parts and stuff like that. I think it's going to be a lot, a lot of fun. I definitely like the fact that you want to keep it as a hobby. This is the one thing that, like... One thing I was talking to Tomer about, he's just like, knife making was never a hobby for me, ever. Like, I don't, he doesn't go and make knives for fun. Yeah. And for me now, I mean, I really don't make knives. Like, if, if for I don't make them for fun. Like, I, the one thing I am, you know, I do enjoy if I have some time is I like to make hammers, but I'm not, I don't have a plan on selling them. Like, I like to make hammers. Like, I really yeah. enjoy it. Like, I'm, I'm finding that to be the stress relief hobby right now for me that I don't want to make professional i don't want to turn into a profession i don't want to i don't want to draw that into it not being you know fun anymore you know no absolutely and especially for right guys of our age right i'm 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 not playing rugby anymore my knees wouldn't take it so (laughs) having a hobby like this is uh is is going to be uh going to be really important um and so I think, yeah, as you said, you're enjoying making the hammers and, and turning the forge on. And that's what you're doing on a Sunday when um, when your wife and your kid are off maybe doing something else. You're, you're still turning back to the shop, but it's you're turning the forge on. You're not, you're not getting the knives out, which is part of your bread and butter of your business. And I think that's, that's the key. The metal shop that I'm going to build, 
I want it to be a professional level metal shop, not because I want the knife making to be a professional level. I want that to be the hobby still. But to your point, I want to be incorporating more metal into my furniture pieces. And therefore the shop will be set up to be a professional space. And it will just be a situation where I'll, 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 I'll be lucky enough to do some of the knife making, which will be the hobby in a more professional space, because that's what I'm using it for, for the, for the furniture business. So Absolutely. It's, so you I'm got me now. As a hobby. You, you're here now. You got me. You got my you got my complete attention. You're going to be a knife maker. Yeah. Let's talk about knife making. What do you want to know? What do you need to know? I think that this is. I think a lot of the listeners of this podcast don't also listen to knife talk. I think that knife making is very. I think there's a lot of mystique around it. I think people make it a little bit more complicated than it is. Sure. But I'm here to answer any question you have. So here's, here's the first question. Go ahead. Am I being a bit dumb forging the f- knife first before I, before I go ahead and start grinding? Or is, is there some merit in learning to forge before I just take a, a, a go and buy a knife blank somewhere that's already got the profile like, like the course we did with you guys and I just grind straight away? That's a fucking good question and it's not dumb. When Forging a knife and doing stock removal. Okay, so... For being a bladesmith, you're forging the piece of steel to be the profile and the shape and the bevel of the knife. Stock removal is getting bar stock and cutting it down and then grinding it, and then that's the difference. And neither one is worse or better. There's more, you know, there's more work involved in one. There's less, you know, there's, but they're both. That, so what we did at Florentine Kitchen Knives were stock removal. We did stock removal yeah. knives. I think that there's two important things you can learn from both. Forging in and of itself is the best. It's fun. And it's like, it is, it is part of the idea of you have control over something. You have control over your mind, too. And you have these physical moments in between heats that show you the milestones of your thinking. Like, you have the physical, you have the physical vision of you... Uh, putting your hammer on the steel against the anvil and you have a degree of satisfaction that you have control over yourself. That in and of itself is worth... I mean, that's like real deep humanity shit. Like, you're not human garbage. You can do this. Yeah. The hard part is there's so much... Depending on the kind of knife you want, there's so much extra work you have to do between forging a knife to just stock removing a knife. So forging a knife, there's, there's, there's things you have. If you can, you can buy steel, you can buy bars of steel. And let's say, let's say you want to make a chef knife like the one you did for Tomer. Yeah. You can order three thirty seconds or whatever, however many millimeters it was. The thickness of the spine, you can get exactly to that thickness and you know it's going to be straight. And then you can grind it and then you can set your guides. When you're forging a knife, maybe you're starting off with thicker material than your ending mater- than the ending of it will be, and you're going to have to uh, prepare, prepare for that. You're also going to have to do more heat treating. You know, there's more. There's something called normalizing. Yeah. So you forge a knife. You let's just say you get it. You forged a shape. You forged in the bevel. You've done everything that you wanted to do. You're done forging. There's no more. You and you know that you're going to have to grind some of it back to get to the steel part and maybe maybe keep some forged finish on it or whatever you want. What you end up having to do is you have to do what's called normalizing because you've, you've beat the shit out of this piece of steel. You've heated it. You've, you've overheated it. 
so there are like there are parts of the steel there's what's referred to as the grain structure and when you're heating the steel up the grain structure expands and it contracts and you're heating it it puts stress in it and you do what's called normalizing and then normalizing is is putting the knife through three usually three uh, levels of 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 high heat one is past we want to talk about i mean i know i'm not asking i'm i'm, I'm going to deep on this situation yeah yeah it's great but so every so when you're normalizing, you have three descending heat temperatures and a specific times that you you put the steel in for a specific temperature for a certain amount of time, let it cool down. Then you'll do it again at a lower temperature and let it cool down. And as you're doing it, it's going to take out some of the stress and it's going to refine the grain structure of the steel. Because you might have left your you know let's say you put your your knife into the forge and then you want to take a leak. You you might have gone past the critical temperature of the knife. We're going to talk about that too. Yeah. So you have to do what's called heat treating and as normalizing. And as you're doing those uh, successive normalizing sessions, you're able to actually, if it starts to warp a little bit, you can correct it while it's still hot. And yeah. part of that is is you know part of this the, the knife is full of stress, so you can kind of slowly slowly repair it before heat treatment, right? And the normalizing cycle is that when you say you allow it to cool, that's allowing it to cool without without putting it into another liquid, whether that be oil or water. That's just letting it cool down after it's been heated. This is preparing the steel for yeah. heat treatment. So right. yeah, so you're yeah. air drying it, you're air yeah. cooling it at three. So so. Every steel that you use, so just to give you an idea, so and I'm, I, I know I'm, I answer your question in like the most gigantic way possible, but you know we're going to work this out. So every steel you have has a critical temperature, and the critical temperature is when. And I'm going to I'm going to explain this the science way, and I'm going to explain this the way that you're going to be able to completely understand. So there's certain types of steel that you can use to make knives, that high carbon steel, and there's certain steels you can't like. A coat hanger. A coat hanger is low carbon steel. So when you bend the coat hanger, it stays bent. Yep. High carbon steel, what you have is a higher carbon in it, and what you want to do is you want to heat treat it to make it sh- make sure that when you bend it, it will spring back. So it'll be hardened. So what heat treating is is you're taking the steel to the critical temperature. Every type of steel, high carbon steel, has a critical temperature. Right, bear with me, and then I'm going to make it interesting. So every steel, every steel alloy has a specific critical temperature where the iron carbides go into solution. And I know the science of it doesn't make sense, but I'm going to explain it. So when it goes into solution, it's not the whole thing melts, but the iron carbides go into solution throughout the, the steel. And then when you quench it, either in oil or specific type of oil, or if it's stainless steel between two plates, you're cooling it down at a pace where that the, the in solution goes into a solid. So when you get to the critical temperature of a knife, it's called austenite. You're, you, that, that, that solution is called, you're creating austenite. And as it cools, the austenite is transforming into martensite, which is a crystal structure which makes it hard and brittle. This all makes no sense to a lot of people, but I'm going to explain to it in the easiest way possible. You've had creme brulee before, I assume. I've I had a very very good creme catalana in uh, in Barcelona, which is reasonably similar. But yes, I definitely did it have the hard before. shell on top. No, it did not have the uh, hard shell on so top. So this is so not the, the same. difference. Yeah. So we're talking creme. Uh, uh, blah, 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 blah. We're talking about creme brulee has is you know vanilla custard, and then they put sugar on top, and they make a hard crisp layer on the top that you hit through with your spoon. So how they do that hard crisp thing is they sprinkle on sugar on top now think about the sugar is the iron carbides 
Yeah. When you sprinkle the sugar on, all those granules have no connection to each other. Zero. And then as soon as the person puts it under the fire, under the broiler, brings a torch to it, you're slowly, slowly raising the temperature of the sugar to create a solution. It goes into a solution. That solution is the critical temperature of the sugar. And it's all of a sudden it goes from these granules that have no connection to a puddle that's, you know, homogenous. It, that is creating austenite. And when you take the torch away, it cools down and it transforms that, that liquid into a crystal structure that you can smash through with your spoon. That's heat treating. So yeah. you're transforming those, those iron carbides that have no connection to a solution. And as it cools at a specific rate, it's turning into the crystal structure that makes it hard. That's easy. So the problem is with the, with the problem is is like all right. So you harden your steel. So you take your steel. You've done your normalizing. You maybe you do a little bit of pre grinding. Whatever we can get into that. Then you put it in your oven. You know, let's say you're 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 using steel like 1084, which the temperature of Fahrenheit, the critical temperature is like it's 1875. You hold it for a certain amount of you know 10 minutes at at at. Uh, 1875. No, I'm completely wrong. That is not correct. Knife makers are killing me. 1475. 1475 for 1084. I was I was on the AEBL train. Stainless steel is closer to 1900. So the 1475 for for 1084. You're holding in a certain amount of time, and what happens is, is all the iron carbides go into solution. Then you pull it out, and then you dunk it in oil. And then what you're doing is you're agitating it so it's cooling at a very specific rate. And the reason why you're agitating it is you don't want the vapor coming off the cooling steel to heat up the oil around it so it won't, it won't transform the austenite into martensite. So what happens is, is you, harden your, you harden your blade and the, just like the creme brulee, you can break it because it's so fragile like that's creme brulee is awesome because you can get through it with a spoon if it was not if it was soft it would be or like 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 chewing gum it would be it would suck but with a knife it can't be brittle you drop it on the floor it breaks that's no good so what you have to do is you have to draw back that brittleness by tempering it so you temper it depending on the steel maybe two times two hours 400 degrees and that draws back some of the brittleness so you can flex it and without it being without it breaking so, we've covered, I mean, the difference between bladesmithing and stock removal is the stock removal, you're already ready to go for the most part. You can stock remove, you can get your blade like we did. The blades that we had at Florentine were already heat treated, but yeah. you can pre you can prep them if it's if you can you can prep them for heat treatment, you can heat treat them. Some steels that are you for stock removal, you don't have to normalize some, you should. And it just it's just a question of the difference between normal uh, bladesmithing and 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 stock removal is there's a there's a there's more work involved in the in the forging part. Yeah, uh, for sure, absolutely. And what for a beginner, what recommendation have you got around the kind of steels that I should be using, whether it be I, forging or stock removal? I would when. When I when I first started, I started forging just because I was a blacksmith before I was 
of sure. uh, knife maker. So to me, it was just more fun. But the problem was I thought, like, these are getting real thick, and I want to make culinary knives, and I don't want to make them. I don't, you know, the forging super-duper thin forging knives, you know, culinary knives can be a little bit more delicate, a delicate job. Um, I would find one thing that I would do is I definitely really liked there's a couple online courses that are really good jason knight has a really good forge a knife making course called forged and i got it and he says one thing about blacksmith about bladesmithing and knife making that i thought was very very poignant he says find you don't have to know a million different steels find one steel and use that one steel until you got it down so 10 series knives like 1084 is a great steel. I use 10 I really stick to for carbon steel I stick to 1084 uh, for forging, it forges really easy. It forges great. Heat treats very. It's very forgiving. The heat treatment's very yeah. forgiving. For stock removal, carbon steel, I like to use fifty two one hundred. It heat treats great. Um, it's it's an awesome. It's an off awesome steel. I don't forge it, but I I could. I, I really stick to a couple. And then for stainless steel, I like four forty C. I've been using four forty C stainless for a long time, and now I'm starting to get back into AEBL, which is closer to what we we're using it. Florentine kitchen knives but that's the the most important thing is finding a steel and being comfortable and with that one steel it doesn't really you don't need to know how to do every single type you know it's it's better to be consistent with one and, and kind of have the deep understanding of how you quench and how it works and then the yeah. range of hardness and stuff like that and I would stick to like you know yeah 1084 is a dynamite steel and I know Toby Morell has some of that 1084 I would I've just Google 1084 and the first thing that comes up is UK knives yeah Toby's supply, got so. Toby's oh, got Toby Toby's got some two, 1084 1084 is a really good for it's great for stock removal and it's great for forging yeah great in fact I got a swing swing by Tony's uh, Toby's place in uh, in the not too distant unit future for a furniture delivery i told him i'd stop in the uh, he, he he said he said he'd get the kettle on so it sounds like a good time time to pick up some steel i think that i think it also is not to be afraid of to doing some stock removal knives too like i found that i i find that forging can be like i was talking to my wife about uh she practices uh she's uh in in, in healthcare, and she says i said do you ever consider not seeing patients anymore and she goes well you know what the problem is is like when you stop seeing patients you lose you lose your you know you lose it's like not speaking a language for a while so when you're not forging a lot you do you do get rusty it's not like riding a bicycle so one of the things i would suggest is getting the grinding down with stock removal right yeah you know that's the that's you know you you're, you're starting out with a clean square piece of steel that's ready to be ground and there's no you know inconsistencies you don't notice oh this is warped because i hit it this way or there are these lumps that i want to get rid of and you know you don't, there's no weirdness and stuff like that so i would consider for sure especially if you're going to have a, if you have a kiln i would highly recommend stock removing some knives yeah. Okay. I would also recommend if you are if you're getting a kiln to not be afraid of stainless steel. Stainless steel is highly highly hot is as easy as anything else to heat treat. And it's doesn't take anything special and I think that especially when you're dealing with, you know, 
Carbon steel is dynamite. But if you're afraid to use it because you don't want to, you know, get it rusty, eh, that kind of sucks. You know what I mean? Just use some axe wax on it. I'll be fine. You use some axe but sometimes you don't want to always put axe wax on it. You don't want to put axe wax on everything all the time. You know, it's like every night you're throwing it. I mean, you could, but I mean, I, I find that, sta- I mean, for me, I mean, I don't know if you're planning on at some point making culinary knives or the kind of knives you want to make, but sometimes stainless steel is very like, you can have a few drinks and not worry that, you know, someone put it in the sink. With just like the knife that I just did with you guys, it was a, it, it, it was, it was a couple of drinks last night and it stayed on the side until this morning until I, uh, until I cleaned it up. So That's it. It looked, it looked pristine. So I think, I think I would definitely like to get into stainless. Uh, Cause yes. That would yeah, be, I mean, um, it's, I think that people, th- well, the, a lot of the reason why people don't use stainless is there's a couple of reasons. One is, is bladesmiths have made it a little bit, uh, uh, gauche, you know, a little bit like they frown upon it. The problem is, is you have to think about the type of customer you have. Like most of my customers, my customers are different than Mareko's customers. Mareko Momasi has high-end collectors or high-end chefs or guys who have experience with this stuff. They're not just willy-nilly throwing their money around. My customers are usually first-time knife buyers. So I usually can gauge when I talk to someone, well, maybe this is for you or maybe I want to get you comfortable in the knife that you want, you know? Definitely. And I think it's, again, for, for, for this being a hobby for me, I'm going to be making knives for me and friends and family. And therefore, most of my family are going to be, oh, this is a really lovely knife. And I'm not doing it from a collecting point of view. They'll be, this is a great knife. And they, they want to have to look after it because it's a high carbon steel and it is going to, going to rust. It's, they want to be able to have a really nice looking knife. Um, and I think, so that, that, that's definitely where I think probably stainless will be good to get into because if i'm gifting them that's the kind of thing you want to gift you don't want to give something give something to somebody that they're gonna go oh that's a lovely gift but it's gone rusty already because i don't really know how to do it whereas i think for myself i like the idea of a of a high carbon yeah. steel um i like it and I, I like the a bit like my pans that i've got from alex i take a great deal of pride in making sure that pan seasoned after using it and making sure it's well oiled and, and and good stuff like that so no i think it's for the knives i make for myself i can see them being high carbon steel for the knives I'll, I'll end up making sort of for, for friends and family um maybe i go the stainless route for those so that's that's great advice and i think I just think you, you guys have always said don't be afraid of i think it's just is it just time the difference between stainless and and high carbon steel well the 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 biggest difference between stainless and carbon is with stainless you're holding it higher temperatures for longer periods of time so you can heat treat out of a forge carbon steel you can heat treat Ah, out of so carbon steel you're at the critical temperature of a lot of these carbon steels is around 1500 degrees which is a specific color like it's like cherry red Yep. Or non-magnetic. Past non- you see sometimes, you'll see somebody take it out of the forge and they'll have a magnet and they'll touch the yep. magnet. It gets pat when you're just past magnetic, non-magnetic. So when you, 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 if your steel's hot, you pull it out of the forge, you touch it to a magnet, it's hot. Or touch it, it, it um, sticks, then it's, you know, whatever. You put it back in a little bit longer, you're moving it around, getting it even, and then you touch it and all of a sudden it's non-magnetic. You've reached or you're in the vicinity of carbon of of uh the critical temperature where you're ready to quench yeah so that's around like 1500 degrees or something like that with stainless like a lot of stainless is you're working with 1900 degrees or 1950 
or closer to 2,000 degrees. And the hard part is, is you want to do what's called soaking. Soaking is holding the, the steel at a specific temperature for a while. Like simple carbon, simple carbon steels, you don't have to hold them back. Because you can imagine, if you put a piece of steel in your forge, you can't walk away from it. You know, you have to get to get it even. You have to move it around, maybe flip it around. Maybe the tip's getting too hot. You have to, you have to monitor how it is, and then you can get to the critical temperature and then quench. Stainless steel sometimes need these stages. Like there's one stainless steel, uh, 440C, I get to 1100, holds it at 10 minutes for 1100. Then it ramps up to 1475 for 10 minutes, and then it goes up to 1900 degrees for 10 minutes. And this is where having the kilns essential for that, so you can put that different time. Kilns, I mean, like the kilns yeah. kind of kill the doubt. I mean, the yeah. kilns kill the doubt. The other thing is, is with this difference between stainless and carbon is a lot of, most of these stainless steels are air hardening. So what'll happen is, is as you're ta- if you're as you're as you're pulling it out, as you pull it out, you 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 if you're for- you're forging it, it can be done, but it's difficult. As you're pulling it out, you're it's hardening as you're pull- as it's cooling down. So you have to be very aware. I mean, carbon steel is not the case. Carbon steel is, you, you know, you, you, you're forging it, you finish forging it, and even after you're normalizing, it's not. It's a little hard, but not that hard. You know, it's not. It's not a hardened blade. But with with stainless. It starts quenching as it cools down by with just being in the air. So it's one of those things that it's like it can be difficult. The, when you have a kiln, though, you know you have your temp- temperature, you figure it out, you hold it at the temperature, and then you put it between. You can do an oil, you could do it between plates of aluminum with compressed air. It's very simple things, but at the same time, it's just a question of how you basically make the creme brulee. It's it's how you make that top, yeah. you know. But that that is one that the creme brulee thing has made it very easy to understand it because the science behind it all. It's like some people get into the science. And they can say things like, oh, you know, it goes in the critical temperature and then the perlite and the martin site and then it's not the other thing. And it's just like, for me, my eyes roll in the back of the head. And I'm just like, I don't understand. What does that mean goes in the solution? What does that mean? I don't know. What, it means the whole thing's going to melt? No. <laughs> you have to kind of figure out a way to kind of make it visually understanding. And then once you have that idea, then it becomes much easier. Right. But it's you know, knife making is fun. But I'm here for you. I I will say I did get your. We did answer your question on knife talk in regards Great. to some of the things. I'll, what I'll, I would I'll, I would tell you to definitely get knife engineering by Dr. Laren Thomas. Right. He, okay. That's a that is he has recipes. He's got recipes for oh, cool. different steels. Like I actually we were doing after Tomer's class. We were doing. We decided I was going to fool around with AEBL again, which is kind of like a similar similar steel to the one we were using. I don't even remember the name of the one we were using. Um, and he, I looked in the back. Did my uh, David uh, Tiger uh, Tiger Claw Customs, who's working with me, working here with me, says, "Oh, Laren's got the the recipe in the back of the book." So I looked at the back of the book, and there it was. And it had the, you know, the 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 temp the ideal temperatures in order to get the specific rock wells. So, Fantastic. and then for rock well, rock well is how hard the knife is, and yeah. you can get these testers, and it can tell you. And that's a controversial thing too, in terms of what's good for culinary knives versus outdoor knives. So, like yeah. how hard something is, and what's preferable. Because yeah. when we were doing the Tomer's class. That particular steel was hot, was heat treated and it was grinding super duper easy. Yeah. Some steels like carb like 440C, we would have been there all day. It would have been yeah. twice <laughs> the amount of time grind. The grinding is to almost twice the amount of time. Yeah. And um, you know, you have different temp, you know, 
there are certain knife makers, knife makers like knife making companies, like Henkel and and, and classic German style knives. Their Rockwell is like fifty four. You know, it's so low. You know, usually a lot of culinary knives are around 59, 58, 60, 61, something like that. But there are professional companies out there making knives that are way softer than you'd think. And it just makes you realize that maybe some of the hardness isn't really make a huge difference. I'm not sure. Or maybe it's just that, just a, a lower quality for them and it's easy for them to have That a could be the production. case. Well, yeah. that's, I mean, so here we now we're at a new... The new part is how hard you want your knife for sharpening. Like some knives can be so hard that it's impossible to sharpen. You know, yeah. some knives are easy to sharpen. Like there's these misconceptions, carbon steel versus stainless steel and what holds an edge better. And, you know, it depends on what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm monopolizing your time. Feel free to ask away. What questions do you have? So key one for me is what, what, why... What, what is the, not necessarily the difference, but are there different pluses and negatives or advantages between a hidden tang or a full tang? or a, In terms of scowls and, and putting them on the knife, what are the disadvantages and advantages of, of doing both? Fucking good question, Mark. Mark Peacock, ladies and gentlemen. What a question. So the, for, if, for, if you're listening in this, you're, what's, a, what's the tang? The tang is the end of the handle that goes, the end of the blade that goes into the handle. So with a full tang knife, you see, when you look at the profile of it, you should be able to see the entire profile, the silhouette of the knife without the handle on it. And then, so the full tang knife has two handle pieces, which are referred to as scales, and they're pinned together. That's a full tang knife. So the steel is all the way around, and then you have two handle scales on either side, and then you seal, see the steel all the way around. Hidden tang knives are, for, are ground or forged into a, like a stick, and they're embedded into the handle. The profile, the, the qualities of a, a lot of them, and this is generally speaking, don't send me messages, the, you, you're, you're going to, generally speaking, if you have a hidden tang knife, the hidden, if it's a, a culinary knife, the blades end will be heavier than you know in terms of the balance of the knife it will be heavier on the on the knife end the bladed end will be on the heavier side the handle end will be on the lighter side there's a little bit less steel generally it becomes more a front forward knife yeah hidden tang knife is a hidden tang knife is going to be like yeah like i said i, I was just saying that a hidden tang knife it's going to be a little bit more blade forward generally it's going to be generally they are a little bit on the lighter side now there are things you can do to make a hidden a full tang knife lighter full tang knives have a tendency to be more what people refer to as balanced whether or not that's good or not i'm not 100 right. sure so if you're doing like if you're doing, if you see competition chopper things or they're, you know, or like machetes or things that are like meant for abuse, generally those are tend to be full tang knives just because they have a little bit more heft to them. And the handle, it, it just, it's got a little bit more heft. For culinary knives, they're a little bit, depending on how you do, because you can do things to take the weight off the hidden, the full tang knife. You can grind the tang into a taper, and that taper will take some of the weight off and make it a little bit lighter. You can take material out of the inside 
where the where the you know you can take a little bit of material out of the inside of the handle to make it you know lighter. There are guys who take a fullering tool on their grinder and then they fuller a channel out in the handle that you never see, and then it's just epoxies in there, and that makes it lighter too. So there are ways in which you can figure out how I personally like full tang knives for myself. Like I like to make full tang knives. I generally use full tang knives. I find them to be, I, th- I find them the constru- for stock removal. I find the construction to be on the easier side. Mm-hmm. And I like the way they feel. I like the way they look. I generally, for stock removal, I do more uh, full tang knives. When I'm forging knives, it's easier for me to do a hidden tang because you don't have right. to worry about the, the, you don't have to worry about the thickness all the time if you don't want to you want to have it even it's nice to be able to embed a, a, make a handle that is embedded onto the knife the other thing is is the traditional reason behind hidden tang knives were back in the day there weren't there wasn't steel yards you know so they were making okay, their own yeah. steel so steel was such a commodity why would you throw a pile of it into the handle that you don't see same reason why you don't see as often people using um making making damascus and making full tang knives of damascus because why would you put all that material into you know where it's covered in epoxy you never going to see it anyway so yeah. they both have their way i do like making full tang knives Generally, my knives are more full tang. I do love hidden tang knives, like Tomer's knives. I just, they feel so great. I, I always think I like a full tang knife, and then I grab one of Tomer's knives. I'm just like, yeah, I should be making these. And it's, a, it's just a, the construction is completely different. Yeah. And I just, it, it, it I, again, I like both styles aesthetically. I just wondered if there was any, any performance difference or any, and it said, it, it sounds like it's the balance really. It's, it's a, just, the, well, yeah. Tomer has used Tomer used when he first started doing his stacked handles he was using weights as the discs so he was able oh, wow. to kind of control the balance by adding more weight to the end so <laughs> he took that whole he took that whole notion that full tang knives are heavier than or more balanced than hidden tang knives he threw that all away by just adding weight to the end yeah so that's uh, the most important thing to realize is when you're making a knife is you want to really when you've either stock removal it or you've forged it you want to figure out all the things you need to do before you heat treat it because what happens is if you don't drill your holes right beforehand it's hard to drill out a hardened steel hole yeah so it's it's the preparation of let's do everything we can do before heat treatment so i don't like get screwed when i'm trying to put the handle on and all of a sudden i can't drill the holes yeah so I've, as as you well know, I'm going to have loads and loads of small pieces of uh, of, of offcuts and wood from my shops. One of the big reasons that I'm uh, I want to get into this because I've got lots and lots of lovely pieces of timber that I can't make any furniture out of, but they can certainly be um, handle scales. So something that I said to Toma, and it surprised me when I said. Uh, do, do uh, th- these pieces of wood am I going to need to stabilize them? He goes, no, you don't need to stabilize these. So stabilize or not stabilize? What what camp are you in? And again, disadvantage, advantages, all of that good stuff. Well, the, here's there's a couple things with Tomer's knives because Tomer has a, a rounded handle. Like when I say rounded, it's actually curved. Yeah, he can't just you can't just use micarta discs or wood discs 
to do his stacked candles. So he uses alternates with with leather too, and there are there is a, a tiny bit of expansion with the leather. So like there are there is expansion and contraction. Now I've have some of his wooden handles. His, his I have some of his discs that are uh, wood, and there hasn't been any expansion or contraction whatsoever, which is incredible. What stabilizing does is stabilizing takes out a lot of the air. So here's an example. You got a house with an old house with wooden windows and wooden doors. And yep. when it's when it's humid out, the doors stick or the windows stick. It's because the, it's expanding. Expansion. There's so much yep. air. There's there's water that gets absorbed into into the holes into the tiny holes of the wood and then it just kind of swells a little bit. And what happens is is that's, you know, there's spaces that can water can go into. When you're stabilizing, what you're doing is you're putting the wood in a small, you're drying it out to the point where there's like less than 10% or less moisture in it. Yeah, I actually put wood in the kiln for two days at 200 degrees and just, just take all the, as much liquid out of it as possible. Then I put in a chamber, filled it with resin, and then I soak it without, without any vacuum for a couple of days. Then I turn this vacuum on. It's completely submerged in the resin, and then you start to see the bubbles come out. And the, what the bubbles are is the air that's in the wood. And what happens is after a long time, and it depends on the wood, you'll start to see the bubbles subside, the bubbles will subside, the bubbles will subside. And then you, when you turn off the vacuum, wherever there was air gets replaced with the resin that it's in. So you'll see I, what I like to do is I take a piece of tape, and then I'll mark the level of where the resin is, and then I'll turn the vacuum off. And then after a couple of days, you'll see that you know you pulled off an inch or two of of liquid, and all that sure. goes into the wood. So then, when you heat, when then you take that wood, you wrap it up in aluminum foil, you put it into the kiln, back in the kiln or an oven, and then the the usually the the resin is heat sensitive, so it'll kind of harden in on that wood, and then wherever inside too. So there's all of a sudden there's no room. There's no air pockets. There's no pockets where water can can go. Now, the reason why you would stabilize is the fact that if you're in a place where there is, you know, there's a lot of humidity, what you don't want is you don't want your handle to expand off the knife, which happens. Ah, uh, right. Okay. Okay. So wow. with, a, with a, you know, on a, t- you know, I know you guys deal with the furniture and there's always a little bit of movement and stuff like that, but on a handle, a l- there's enough expansion that it can just... Pop it off the tape. Pop it off the epoxy. So and it, and it pops it off the pins too. If you're using pins and not using mechanical fastening devices, it can just kind of like pull past the pins. So generally speaking, there are certain woods that don't need to be stabilized. Um, oilier woods that don't need to be stabilized. Yeah. Rule of thumb for me is is I don't want to fucking call. <laughs> I don't want a phone call. <laughs> so like I'll stabilize wood unless I get sta- and I've bought stabilized wood that wasn't stabilized. Yeah. And I would for sure if you're going to get into stabilizing, uh, Toby has an episode of Fire and Steel where back in the day before Honor came on, where he uh, did a whole thing on stabilizing. He knows stabilizing is not a fast. You shouldn't be. If you're stabilizing a set of scales in two days, you might be cutting corners. Like yeah. I now back off my stabilize. I, I mean, now I'm only using G10 because I love it. But when I'm stabilizing, I'm I'm putting a month into the stabilizing. I'm 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 wow. making sure okay. because it's like the longer it's in the fluid, the better of a of. A, I've had stuff sitting in the resin for three months. 
I've, I've, I, I want to make sure that I don't get a call and lock, knock on wood. I haven't gotten any calls, but I mean, if, if I do, you know, you've done everything you could have. <laughs> I mean, you, get, you do as much as you can. I mean, you're, if I'm, I'm lucky enough to be busy enough that I'll, I'll be able to, you know, it's like I said, like there's so many things in knife making that is, you don't have to sit there and watch, you know? So I can have a chamber going and then I'll let it sit for, I've, I've let stuff sit in the resin for a couple months and, you know, I feel confident that it was a, it was a good stabilizing, but the answer is you don't some i've made knives with walnut that have not and haven't been stabilized and hasn't moved at all and i've have used stabilized wood that turn into a banana you know so (laughs) you can never you can never truly tell i when in doubt in my my motto is when in doubt use g10 (laughs) <laughs> that's bad, bad so what what what's the what's the next thing to go to if it's uh if, it, if mean, it's not wood g10, g10 for me yeah. is g10 is like the devil the, the angel and the devil at the same time because it's like it is so bad for you it's like it's fiberglass but at the same right. time nothing is more like i can get i can get the same color g10 from three different places it's going to be exactly the same and right. it doesn't chip and it doesn't break and it finishes beautifully and the colors are dynamite and i can be creative with it but it being at the same time it's like you know every time I, I got masks on i got air respirators on and air filters going i got everything going i'm covered up to head to toe and i'm still thinking all right this might take a few hours off my life this knife so yeah that's just the way it is yeah, it sounds sounds like some tropical hardwoods. I try not to touch them with a barge pole these days. Quite but at the same time, but at the same time, there are methods in which I mean, I have hammers that I've made that they don't swell. You know, your axes, people make you don't stabilize axe handles. You know, nope. um, but at the same time, it's like the bind is different. Like if you have a, a not, you know, you can feel on a hit on a full tang knife when a knife is expand, you know, when the wood is expanded, you can feel all of a sudden, you know, after a few months or a few years, you feel like there's like a, like an edge, you know, you feel like there's this definitely a, a difference from when you sanded flush. So it's, it's, it's also a question of what you're willing to accept. Yeah. Yeah. So we did the, the eight inch chef's knife yeah. with you guys in Barcelona. If I'm going to make a different style of coloring knife, What's the next one to go to next after Chef's Knife? Here's the best thing. The best thing is you like to cook. This is the number one thing that I think is completely bananas in the knife world is that guys who make culinary knives who don't enjoy cooking, and I'm not saying you have to make tweezer food, but people, you should like to cook. And if you like to cook and you just, you're in the, when you're cooking, you're, it's not a struggle. When you're cooking, it's a thing that you enjoy doing, but you're not thinking too hard. You're not cutting through every, every slice. You're not being like, you're rating the cutting. You just like, you're in the kind of zone or you're in that flow state or something like that. That's what's going to figure out what you like to make. I think I used to only make nine inch chef knives because when culinary school, that's what we used. But I realized that the eight inch chef knife is a little bit more user friendly. Mm-hmm. I think that the knives to, that I like the most have, have, you know, and we, we, we push more eight inch K tips 
just because I like them more. I just like the way that I like the the heft. I like the fact that it, it's easier to it's easier on a, on a home cutting board. You're not flying off this. I mean, people want 11 inch chef knives, but they have like a you know an eight inch cutting board. It's like what are you gonna you're gonna cut the gonna cut the half the kitchen down? You know, it's like I mean, it's I think that pairing knives are the most useful knives besides the eight inch K tip. I think um, fillet knives, boning knives. Are great. I mean, I'm a I'm a huge I'm a giant offset serrated fan. Um, I love a bread knife. I, I, now that I figured out how to do the serrations, I I feel more comfortable doing putting serrations in than an actual edge on a knife. Um, but like, I would suggest the knives that you like to use. Like, there are people who like Santokus, which are more bull nose. They don't have such a point. There are certain people who like the the spine of the knife to go high like uh, French-style knives. There are certain yeah. people who like more of a Japanese-style knife where the, the tip is on the lower side. I would, stay, I would tell you what knife I would stay away from, and I, and I think most knife makers should stay away from them. They should stay away from culinary knives where the edge is flat, where the, whole, the profile of the cutting edge is flat, because they're too hard to sharpen. Right. If you have a nice, simple, easy radius, and this is something that knife makers do that they don't realize. Knife makers who started out making hunting knives basically took off the basically had this flat area in the first like three inches of the knife and then it curves up this is not a really comfortable knife to use in my opinion but the worst are the knives that are flat 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 like that that the geometry of the cutting edge is flat from the heel to the tip it's one they're impossible to sharpen impossible to sharpen and if you have some uh, just even the slightest bit of radius they're going to be easier to sharpen and maintain over time like those, like I made some. I made these knives for the chef. They called a nakiri, and it's almost like a thin butcher knife. They were a bitch to fucking sharpen. And I'm waiting for some of the customers. For I sold them a couple of years ago. I'm waiting for them to call me up and say, "How do we sharpen this thing?" And I'm going to be like, "Send it back. I'll take care of it." And it's going to be. I'm going to be screaming and hollering all the time. Ugh, this fucking thing. But it's. I. I would make knives that are easy to use, easy to sharpen, and something that you like to use. And then yep. when you're thinking about th- you should be thinking about the parts of the knife that you your for your knife that make a difference. Like rounding the choil under the heel is huge and it isn't just because of the way it looks, but when you're in the pinch position, you don't want the edge of that thing cutting in your fingers. Same thing on the on the on the spine of the knife. I round all my spines because the chef, a uh, cook said to me, he's like, I hate getting new knives because I always get a blister because I have to get used to the edge. I said, well, you know what? I can round that. I can round the spine of the knife. And I round the spine of the knife. He says, and he was telling all his friends, my guy, he'll, he'll round the spine of your knife. That's the best goddamn knife ever. Just because he, he, it was comfortable to use in the pinch position. So, uh, and that was really that was the first time I'd, I'd seen that choil with the, sort of the, the rounded cutout on the, the knives we did. Yeah. And it was it was something that that realization of wow that's really useful because I'm not I I I wouldn't I, I wouldn't say my my knife my knife skills are are, are great I I can I, I can I can chop reasonably quickly but I do I always have I think what you call the pinch position where I've got my thumb and my forefinger either side and I've got the the and I'm putting the the pressure down on the uh, on the on the spine of the knife and it was like wow that's a lot more comfortable holding that in the choil than 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 the knives I've used previously so that was 
it was really interesting to see it and actually understand its function rather than it looking aesthetically pleasing, which well, it does. <laughs> there's also, like, my K-tips have, like, a rounded, they have this rounded connection between, so you look down the heel, and then yeah. it goes up, and it, and it kind of, like, rounds in before it kind of transitions back into the handle. Part of that's also because it's easier for cleanup. Like, if you have a very tight yeah, transition okay. between the heel and the the, 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 the heel to the the bottom of the handle if it's like a 90 degree heel if it's a 90 degree transition they're really hard to clean like that whole especially if it's a full tang knife it's really hard to clean so i wanted to make something to be easy to kind of put together too yeah the other thing is you don't have to be a great cook you just kind of have to like to cook and and when you start to like to cook you have to start to say i don't like this knife because it makes me feel like this like use a knife that you don't once you start using a knife that you don't like you immediately realize why you don't like it so then you start to find a knife that you like and then you start to note the things about that knife that you like when you're cooking like i have knives that are just too thick and and i made them and i don't use them and now i get thinner knives and i'm comparing knives and stuff like that the most important thing is for you to enjoy it and then figuring out what about that knife you enjoy yeah Definitely. I think those. I think those. Uh, I think a pairing knife is uh, is an underrated knife that you use at home all the time. I've never had one, I've, so that's gonna maybe that one I'll do because then I can actually use a pairing knife. I've just it's just never something I've thought about buying or having in the kitchen because I've always a chef's knife's always done the job that I needed to do for for most things. I even cut bread with a chef's knife. So. <laughs> there's also two styles of there's two styles of pairing knives that a lot of these guys don't realize. There's one pairing knife where it's got a short heel, a very short heel. So you can actually the heel can reach the um the cutting board. There's the other type of pairing knife. And that's the pairing knife that I've been doing where the heel transitions straight out from the blade so that that that, that last edge of the knife is never really meant to touch the cutting board. It's because uh-huh. of the pairing knife you're using it in your hand. Yeah. So when you're using your hand, it's a little bit more limber and flat easier to use in your hand if you're like peeling something or you're cutting off the stem of something and you have it in your cutting cutting it back towards you almost as if you're whittling. So that type of pairing knife is a is a, yeah. I think is a little bit more user friendly. Like those little pairing knives where it's almost like there's a little heel and it's like a mini version of a chef knife. You don't really want those you don't want that edge to be so far away from your thumb when you're going like towards yourself. Like you almost don't have as much control. Yep, definitely. Uh, and one of the last questions I have is how, how much tape should I be buying? I mean, I have enough tape in a woodworking shop, but you guys get through some tape. That's for sure. You mean like, uh, oh, <laughs> so when you're, so, okay, so you've glued up your handle and then you're trying to protect your knife. Exactly, yeah. I found that electric tape is the best bang for your buck. And because it's, it's very inexpensive to use. And so what I do is I'll take a piece of, uh, like we have rags and I'll wrap the knife in a rag after, after, you know, or before I'm gluing up just to protect the finished blade. And then I'll use electric tape and you get enough padding that it really kind of like protects the blade from when you're putting the handle on or you're grinding the handle or you're just not going to scratch it up. So I would get a few sleeves of electrical tape. You can use the one thing you don't want to do is just use like duct tape. <laughs> yeah. Don't put duct tape or like masking tape on the blade direct because the clean. What happens is, is all those adhesives. Like you want something on the blade, before, like cloth or paper or cloth something. Cloth or kitchen towel, that kind of thing. Something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Because what happens is also, especially if it's cold out, the adhesive like dries up, 
And then sure. it's a bitch to get it off. Like I've had times where I've had to get a heat gun out to reheat the whole thing. And <laughs> it just, it's just a mess. So I always put, I always wrap something, wrap something around and then I use electrical tape. So yeah, there's a lot of electrical tape here. It's cheaper than anything else. Sounds good to me. And consider how, consider your, cons, a couple of things that I, I'm the last few minutes in terms of little things that I would consider, you know, investing in is a drill press. Having a drill press is huge. I'm sure you have a drill press. I do, yes. Have I, 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 dedicated, dedicated drill bits just for the, for the knives, for the knives. Okay. I would, I would strongly look into doing Corby bolts. Those are mechanically fastened bolts. Figuring out your bolting situation, uh, figuring out your bolting situation is is important, and then you can get special bits for you know that accommodate Corby bolts. Have a game plan on handles. Yeah, like you know, figuring out you know I use I use I put my scales and I bolt and I put a little bit of crazy glue in between them to make them solid and then i use the knife as a gu- as a guide to drill down in and then you can get them flat and sure. f- having also having um having plans on how to fix your problems is big like yeah having problems then figuring out how to fix your problems i was about to say it, so- it sounds a bit like woodworking from a point of view is ha- ha- half the time you're uh you're, you're you're doing the technique and half the time you're working out how to fix your mistakes so I will give you one bomb. This is for all you knife makers out there too. If you have somehow you have you've let's say you're doing a full tang knife, you've drilled your holes out, you've heat treated the knife, you've you've put the scales on, you've uh, you've put the scales on the bottom, you've drilled out your scales, you're putting it all together and something doesn't fit. You know, sometimes it happens. Like if you, maybe your drill press is off, or maybe the the steel's off, or maybe the 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 white, and you have this just enough that your that your your steel is too big. Get some carbide die grinder bits, like like that you get on Amazon. You know what I'm talking about? They're like yep. like balls or something like that. And don't put them in your die grinder. Put them in your drill press. This oh, drill right, yeah. press goes so slow, it cuts through card, hardened steel so fast and without any heat. They are a changed. My, I don't have to take the goddamn gr- die grinder out anymore. I just stick one of those little quarter inch balls into the ball uh, bits into the drill press, and it goes slow enough that it goes right down and it walls out the hole in the steel. Those are clutch. Clutch. Nice. Nice. There you go. Knife Talk Jr. <laughs> any parting questions or you got my number so anything you need you know where i'm looking forward to whatever you're doing but no thank you so much and again thank you to you and toma and the rest of the team for the for the course it was fantastic um the, the whole experience from not just the actual making of the knife but the whole thing i can't recommend it enough to people so thank you ever so much Thank you, Mark Peacock, dear River Craftsman. Go follow Mark on Instagram. This was Knife Talk Junior, guys. And be honest with you, I was a little tongue-tied because I wasn't expecting to this to be Knife Talk. For some reason, I was just like, oh, yeah, just talk about heat treatment, talk about this. And I was just like, I found while I was talking, I was a little tongue-tied because this is so not Knife Talk that I, I, wasn't, I wasn't in the Knife Talk mind. But you, you know what I'm saying, guys. I and mean, I know that... 1084 doesn't heat treat it. 1875. Don't don't fucking at me, please. I'm begging you. Guys, go follow Mark Peacock on Instagram. He has an awesome YouTube channel too. He's doing great stuff and he's gonna start making knives. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. And uh 
Thanks for listening, everybody. And and once again, congratulations to uh, Honor and Emma. They just had their wedding. And they had, oh yes, congratulations, guys! The royal wedding. That was a gr- that was a great episode. It was a lot of fun and uh, looked like a lot of fun. So congratulations to them and thanks to everybody for listening to the podcast. Give us do me a favor. You listen to this podcast. You like this podcast. Tell your friends. Share in your stories. It helps me out. And go leave a goddamn review. Some of you guys are. I need you to leave me good reviews because it helps me out. Okay, ladies and gentlemen. All right, guys. Mark Peacock once again, dear River Craftsman. Uh, we didn't talk about baseball, but I have a bad feeling the Yankees are not going to get in the World Series. And you know, I I got a bad feeling about it. We, we got to talk about it another time. But we'll talk about it another time. All right, guys. We will see you next week. See you later. This show is brought to you by the Makery, the podcast network for makers. Hey!